This podcast takes you into the rarely discussed realm of the personal decisions leaders have taken that have influenced their business decisions and developed them into the leaders they are today. The refreshingly honest experiences of those who have been very successful provide an insight into the challenges they faced, the successes they achieved, and the people who influenced them along their journey. Here's our host, Mark Silvera. Hey, welcome to Business Made Personal. We have with us today the Managing Director of BJS Insurance Group, Belinda Scott. A little bit of background on Belinda. Belinda grew up in the insurance industry, working in her father's business Concord underwriting agencies. She studied a Bachelor of Commerce with a double major in insurance and management at Deakin University under Gary Gribben, and also obtained a cadetship at the then Mercantile Mutual Insurance Company. At Deakin, she met her now husband, Alistair, a dairy farmer from Inverloch, which led to her starting BJS Insurance Brokers in 1998 with an office on Phillip Island, one employee, and a massive GWP of 350000 Belinda. That's correct. Today, BJS has grown to be a national broking group employing over 150 people in 13 offices with a GWP nearing $140 million. Being a mother of four children, Belinda has learned to maintain a happy work-life balance something she believes is vital to appreciate and encourage as a business owner and something that the industry undersells itself on. Welcome to the program, Belinda. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolute pleasure. Hey, Belinda, you started working in insurance as a teenager. You were doing the filing in your father's underwriting agency. Was that out of a sense of obligation or is that something that you, or did you just need the money? Well, probably a bit of both, um, Mark. I grew up in a family that really had a strong work ethic from my grandparents through to my parents. And I had my first job at 14 working at a bakery starting at 5.30 in the morning. So, always wanted to have that independence of earning my own money as well. So, there's no way I was going to walk straight into a cushy job. I had to earn my way up and filing was where you started. So, you mentioned your grandparents had a strong work ethic. Yeah, so I had um, a grandfather that was a grocer, another grandfather that was in the Navy, and a grandmother that drove trucks, and all of them were always working. I grew up with parents working and balancing the work-life balance as they did, and yeah, so that's sort of what I knew. So you really didn't have the traditional mum stays at home and dad goes out to work sort of background? Yeah, well, mum balanced it well. It was that you know, organisation of picking us up from school and she'd be there of the evenings. Dad was often working till late, but there on weekends. And But she worked, yeah, she worked with Dad often, but before that she had her own job as a secretary and, yeah, it was always that balancing act. So I read somewhere that the age of 16 you wanted to be a vet. Yes, that was my dream job. Loved animals. Set myself up at school doing um, chemistry, biology, two maths, all the things you need to challenge yourself with. And of course, I didn't get the scores required. It was higher than medicine the year I went in. And probably over year 12, by the time I finished it, that my mum filled out my university form and put down insurance management at Deakin University um, under Gary Gribben. And funny enough, that's what I got into. So I certainly fell into it, but I said, I'll do it for a year and then I'm transferring. As it turned out, I'm probably pretty lucky. I didn't do vet science. I think I would have found it very challenging, but additionally, I'm allergic to most animals and not really great with needles. So I don't think it was a career path for me. At least it was a dream right at that stage. Yeah, exactly. So whilst you were studying at Deakin, when I did the intro, I mentioned that you met your now husband who came from a dairy farm 
Was he studying the same course as you? He was doing. Gary Gribben had a long association with um, the Richmond Football Club and he was playing there. And so he used to encourage them to come across and do some management and commerce and insurance and promote the industry, which was desperately needed at the time. And I just happened to meet him in a um, management class. And so eventually you chose to relocate to regional Victoria? Yes. So funny enough, they couldn't move the dairy farm down to Metro. So the choice was if um, we wanted to be together, I um, had to move down here to um, beautiful Inverloch. And yeah, it required me to, to think of my career and think about where I wanted to head and what I wanted to do. How did you go with that transition? Because you obviously stayed in the city pretty well all your life until yeah, Inverloch. What sort of challenges did you face relocating? It was a really strange thing because whilst you feel like you know people in the city, it's a very different feel in the country. Everyone knows everybody. And I used to joke around with the people here that you really need a book. If you're coming to the country, you need a book of who's related to who, how the networks work. You meet people all the time and didn't realise they were cousins with people you've known. And so it's a really, everyone looks after everyone, but everyone knows everyone and knows what you're doing. So it was a, a really big change. I guess I got really used to driving as well. It's two hours drive, so did a lot of commuting, but it's coastal too, so it's a nice drive. Oh, it's a great place to be. So you kicked off in Phillip Island in 1998. BJS is now a national brand. How did you personally transition? So, you know, you're a sole proprietor and I read you had one employee. You were busily minding your own business in Sunny Inverloch or it's Phillip Island. Then all of a sudden you decide or you know, you and your dad, Ron, decided to expand the business. How did that happen and and what actually happened as a result of it? Yeah, so how I started BJS, if I take it just a little step back, I came down here and said, well, I've got this commerce degree in insurance, what's available? And there, there was mainly real estate agents that might have sold insurance on the side. They only really needed a secretary or someone to answer the phones. There wasn't any profession here for me. So the choice was, did I want to continue and utilize that or not? My grandma had passed away and left me some money and that became the deposit for me to start BJS and I purchased a small agent on Phillip Island that was nearing retirement. Everything was in written folder, nothing on computer and it was a baptism of fire. I was a young female walking down the street seeing older men about their insurances who had had the same trusted advisor for 30, 40 years. And then all of a sudden, here I am, new kid on the block, and I'm not even local. So it was a really challenging, I'm not overly confident with people. So for me, it was a really outside my comfort zone. But the one thing I did realize, people wanted to see me do well. They wanted to help me. And as long as I was open, honest, and genuine with them, they were really supportive. So it's a really small network. If you do something right, people will have your back. If you do something wrong, everyone's against you. So I learned that very quickly, but there was just myself for the first little while. And then I employed one person to help me out. And yeah, my dad had Concord Underwriting, as you mentioned at the time. And then later on, he sold that to back to QBE. As a family, we should have a, you know, a bit of an exciting time with this and see what we can do with it. So Thus, the growth of BJS and other offices. I think if you do something that you enjoy and you see a benefit in it, it's nice to be able to offer it to more and more people and you're limited by one branch or just by one person. So what we do across the group now is no different to what I did when it was just myself. It really is the same model. It's just doing the basics right. So 
During all that time, you also decided to have not one, not two, but four children. Yes, that is true. (laughs) I guess the question that I've got is, how did you manage your career as well as young children, as well as being in a regional location? I guess it wasn't a conscious decision as to how it was going to work. It just happened and we wanted to make it work. But also, I didn't really appreciate how fantastic the insurance industry is with its flexibility. It really is based on relationships and you get to know those people on a really personal level. So, all of my clients knew I was pregnant. They all knew. Um, How did this happen? They'd seen me. I'd been out there and they were just as excited. You know, mobile phones made it and laptops make it extremely accessible. I can work from anywhere. I can have time off. And it was just this balancing act. I think people often say, oh, you've got four children. How do you do that? I don't remember one being easy. I think we're all busy, whether you have children or not. People's lives are just busy. And probably by the time I got to four, I just learned to embrace the chaos. That's just, I don't question it. We just get stuff done and, you know, we might be crazy running around, but our word is our word. And if I get it, say I'll get it done, I do. It's been a a lovely industry to be able to do that. A lot of my friends have had to give up their careers in other industries because it's very much a non-flexible working hours. My clients are quite happy if I, you know, send them an email early or late or give them a call or come out and see them. When For a lot of them, the flexibility of time suits them because they're busy during the day. So, it really worked quite well. So, you know, during this time though, your husband is a dairy farmer. Now, I don't know much about farming, but I do know that dairy farmers start very, very early and they don't get Saturdays and Sundays off. So, what sort of impact did that have on you? Yeah, look, when the kids were little, it was great because they could go out on a tractor with him and, and he was around during the day. That We were lucky in that aspect. As the kids got older, he actually came across to the dark side and studied insurance and, and now works in the family business. So, it became a real balancing act between the two of us. I used to joke that we were more logistics people of just working out, okay, if I do that meeting, you go there, you go here, I'll take this one to this. That's predominantly our life is just the logistics of how we'll coordinate it. And I know this is uh, not about him, but moving into the insurance industry from with a dairy background, did that help him deal with clients? Absolutely. Funnily, he specialises in our agricultural and farming area. He also understands machinery. So I think that's the key to what we do across BJS is have that diversity. You know, um, my brother-in-law that also works in the company is a plumber by trade. So he understands um, all aspects of building and and risk and and all that assessment kind of area. So he was a surveyor to start with. So I think that diversity allows our network to utilise each other. We don't all have to be experts, but it's great having people like that on board. I just want to change tack for a minute. So in 2014, you were the inaugural Valerie Baker Memorial Award winner. And I knew Val, she was, she was a very good friend of mine. What was that like? And what did you actually learn from that experience? I remembered Val from my first ever insurance conference was up at Jupiter's. I believe it was a neighbor conference. And I was one of three female, three females in the room. Not that it worried me. Everyone made me feel very welcome. And I'd always been welcome in the industry. It was sort of all I'd known really anyway. But she was a strong woman. She was strong about our industry. She knew her stuff and she was extremely respected. So to be the inaugural winner was a true honour, really, after someone so amazing for our industry. And not just because she's female, she was just an amazing advocate for our industry, full stop. 
I got to go over to London, you know, amazing experience. I met Inga Beale, which was the first female CEO of Lloyd's. She, again, was an amazing person to have the privilege of meeting. But the irony was I, I also spent a day with Richard Fleming Insurance Brokers and met the team there. And you start to think how big the world is and how big the insurance industry is. And their aviation person that I met came into the room and said, oh, we only do one company in Australia where they're mainly around the world. And the company he mentioned, I did the general on the ground in Australia and he did their international side of it. It was the irony of that he knows one person in Australia or one company and we happen to do the insurances and you start to realise it's still quite a small industry really. Absolutely. And you don't have to go too far afield. I think people have this view that, you know, the insurance industry is so big that, you know, you can get lost in it. I've been in it for over 40 years. I've never been lost in it. People know people that know people and it's, you know, not even six degrees of separation in our industry. It's a lot less than that, I think. Yeah, 100%. So you mentioned that you were one of only three females in the room at that convention. I just want to talk a little bit about women and insurance and your view in terms of how that felt for you at the time. I never was really conscious of it because being at the underwriting at Concord, um, we we did have females that were underwriters there. But again, it was a predominantly a male-dominated industry. It's changed a lot now. When you go to conferences, it tends to feel 50-50 in the room. At BJS, a lot of our top management people are women. We're about 50-50 in that space. And that's not a conscious effort. No one wants to be the token diversity person in the room to tick a box. I'm really conscious of right people, right roles. And it's really exciting that those people are out there in, in all walks. And I guess... It's hard to talk about women, particularly in insurance. I think women are inherently clever at saying, you know, we've had a lot of people, amazing women work for us that could have been in management roles and could have taken on the world and could have done anything, but they were really happy doing what they were doing and having that work-life balance. And they did that really well. And they consistently do do that really well for us. So it's not even a limit of capabilities. Some women just choose, I don't want what goes with that role. I'm really comfortable in my role. But I do think we're opening up now to not looking at whether it's male or female, but just looking at right person, right role. And I think our industry shows that we've got really impressive women doing amazing things everywhere. And I think that's true. And and it certainly changed from the days that I started. I guess the question that I've got is that, yes, there's a, a much more proportionate number of women in the insurance industry, but it appears to be disproportionate at that executive level. And that's hard for me to talk. I don't disagree with you. It's factual, obviously. It's just more so at BJS, we don't make a conscious effort, choose a sex for a role. And yet we're pretty much 50-50. We did a conference four years ago and we had a well-known comedian, Dave Hughes, actually come and he was fantastic. And he he actually asked us, before I come and talk, I need to know the split. I need to know the split of the diversity, the ages. And we'd never even looked at it. It had never been part of our our makeup to go, okay, do we tick these quotas, if you like? And when we actually looked at it, our age was 19 to 78 across our workforce at that time. I think we had about 120 people on board at that stage. We had 48% women, 52% men. And we had about 60-40 in management roles. That's now about 50-50 in management roles and, again, hasn't been a conscious decision. 
I know there's really good women out there that are capable of taking on these roles. What I don't know to answer your question is whether they've gone for those roles and not got them or whether they've just gone, I don't want what goes with that role. Thank you. So I guess that that's the big question. Yeah, it is. And, and that is a good question, actually, one I hadn't really given too much consideration to, right? Having a choice is, is all powerful, right? Absolutely. You know, you've basically been in the insurance industry since the time you were 16. What do you think the profession has given you personally that you never expected to get out of it? Yeah, one of the big things I never thought, you know, it sounds silly, but as a trusted advisor, I, I get a seat at the boardroom table. More so than their solicitor or their accountant, I get the call when they're thinking about doing something, there's an idea. I really get to see their business warts and all, things that work, things that haven't worked. I've watched companies expand enormously. I've watched companies on the other side of that, them struggle through, particularly the last few years through COVID. You know, our industry has the privilege and I guess the hard task of holding people's hands through troubled times and troubled waters, but we also get the benefit of seeing people at exciting times in their life. You know, it, as simple as buying a house is, you know, a very emotional asset to do, but also a business is a, a particularly personal thing for someone to go through as well. So, yeah, I think that the growth and, and the challenge is always there. There's always new industries. There's always something to learn. There's always a new challenge. And just because something didn't work for one company doesn't mean it won't. And you get to see how different people operate. Yeah, it's a real privilege that they trust us with that. You know, and they value our opinion. You say it's a privilege. I, I'm, I'm going to disagree with you. I think you've probably earned the right. Oh, thank you. Well, I do. I don't think it just pops up out of the air and they go, oh, you're my insurance broker, come along. So I want to ask you a question relating to that. What importance do you place on that client-broker relationship and how do you encourage it? That's everything. And that's one thing. If I could talk to myself at my younger self, I would say to myself that, you know, the importance of that relationship, not only to getting what you do right, that's the byproduct or the end product, if you like, it's actually to the enjoyment of the job. So getting to know that company, getting to know those people personally on a personal level, it's no longer a job. And if I look at my dad and, and that generation that have grown up in insurance, they don't retire because it's their life, it's their fun, their friends are in it, it's their world. And they don't want to retire. They're not those people that hit, you know, sort of 60 and go, I can't wait to get away from this job. This job is who they are. It's in their blood. And that enjoyment does not come from sitting behind a computer sending an email. That enjoyment comes from going out and getting to know your clients and finding common interests and learning from them and just creating relationships. Really interesting point you made because the Vero SME index came out not so long ago and they were looking at comparing 2012 to 2021. So a nine-year nine span. One of the graphs in there fascinated me and that was around broker-client contact. They highlighted in that report that broker-client contact from 2012 to 2021 had dropped off significantly. And I'm wondering... A, why you think that might be the case and B, whether you guys sort of condone that? Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Obviously, those figures are pretty true to the way we interact as an industry now. I think people want information faster, they want it smarter and they want it easier and, and that's no doubt in everything I do. So, I have to sort of take my insurance broking hat off and say, if I'm doing anything with another service industry, I want it to be easy. I just want it to make my life easy, not more complex or complicated. 
the problem we have in our industry is that our products and the way they respond to claims is not easy and it's individual and really it's quite complex. So it is that balancing act that we now sit behind computers, we try and streamline things, but the way we find out the most about our client is over a coffee or is when they just relax and talk. When you ask them a set of questions, you very rarely find out the whole picture of their scenario because they're questions designed for generic questions for everybody. We are really conscious at BJS of getting back to basics. And when I say about us not really changing from when we first started, it is that. I used to walk down the street, get in my car, go and see clients. And, you know, that was outside my comfort zone, but it didn't become outside my comfort zone when I got to know them. They're still people I talk to now. So it is that initial importance, but I'm also conscious of it from the other side. You know, our people are our biggest assets and I want them to enjoy their job. I often say I can't make insurance sexy. It is what it is. You know, I can't be Oprah and say, love your job. You know, you are, it is insurance. But what I can say is if you want to enjoy your job, the biggest asset for you guys is to get out there and get to know your your clients and have fun with your clients. Like go and do stuff with them. I don't care if you're playing golf with them, go do stuff and enjoy your work. Because it's not enjoyable sitting behind a computer at a desk. No, it's certainly efficient, but it's certainly not enjoyable. They say that successful people are a result of the mistakes they make, but probably more importantly, you know, what they learn from those mistakes. What do you think you've learned from some of the mistakes you've made? <laughs> I make them every day. Join the club. You're, you're not Robert Crudson Crusoe, that's for sure. I used to say the minute you think you've got it all right and you've got nothing to learn and, you know, you haven't got that growth mindset, probably give up. And I'd say that about parenting to anyone becoming a new parent. You know, if you think you know everything, well, you've read a book or whatever, probably give up now because you're going to muck up. So I'm conscious of saying that and conscious of talking to our team when I do muck up because I need them to know that it doesn't matter how much experience you have, you are going to make mistakes and you need to learn from them. I think As I've got older, probably I've got more confident at backing myself and and backing that intuition more. And I am an overthinker, funny enough, and an overanalyzer, which does help in our industry. But I've learned to sort of trust the situation. I think the other side of it too is I've always wanted, we have some great people come in and out of our industry. And I've had a lot of trouble letting those people go. We don't lose too many staff, touch wood. Thank goodness. They're amazing. But yeah, I really have a lot of trouble. I I say you're either on the bus or you're not on the bus. You're either with BJS or you're not. And if you're not, that's okay. We're not going to throw you off the bus, but we wish you well and we'll help you get to whatever your career progression. But I must admit when people want to change industries, I'm really keen to drag them back in on that bus and go, we'll throw everything at you. And I think the one thing I'm learning is that it's okay to teach people a bit about our industry, let them go, see if they want to come back. And a lot of them do return. So I just learned to trust the journey and trust the process a little bit more than force it. And I think too, you know, I was talking to someone the other day about my son who's had a, his first job was as a bartender. His second job was cleaning toilets in the bungle bungles. His third job was as a tour guide operating at a broom. His fourth job was tour guiding out of Tasmania. He's now in one of the armed services. I think people these days want different career strains. How do you then help people to stay in the industry? What do you do? Do you just let them go and then hopefully they come back or what do you do? It's an interesting one because when you talk about the younger generation coming through, they are people that really want a variety and want spice of life, if you like, in their job and do see that they want to change. I think it's easy for 
someone like me to sit there and say, you know, you should stick at it. But I'm also really conscious of them being happy. If you're not happy in your job, you're not. that's going to show in everything you do. It's going to affect the people you work with. It's going to affect your home life. So I think the one thing I've, I say to people, whatever you're doing, do it well. Just do it really, really well because opportunities happen. A lot of people chase a title or chase money or whatever they're chasing, but they forget to do whatever they're doing at that particular time really well. And it's amazing if you do that really well, how many more opportunities will come your way because people notice that. They notice you doing the basics really well. The other thing, I, I mean, a huge promotion of our industry is that there are so many opportunities for growth. You know, we don't know now what insurances we're going to be selling in 12 months because there will be new industries. There is just so many opportunities. And I think we undersell that of people that want to reinvent themselves. You know, it's not the same cookie cutter process every year. Um, we're having claims that we've never seen before. We're having um, issues and, and even the management of that. There's so many aspects to our industry. Unfortunately, because it's not promoted like a solicitor or accountant at that level out of school as a career pathway, we're not spoilt for choice of people coming in. Like a lot of the people that are doing amazing things within our group at BJS, we've taken out of school and taught them about insurance. In fact, at one of our branches, we've now got four more people because of one person we put on saying, oh my gosh, didn't hear of this industry, you should do it. And him talking to his mates has made them equally really interested in, oh, this could be fun. You know, we get to go out and see people and talk to people. So yeah, I think as an industry, we've got to be a lot better at promoting how amazing our industry is to work in. Oh, absolutely. I'm into that. We're speaking with Belinda Scott, who's the Managing Director of BJS Insurance Brokers. Belinda, I want to turn the spotlight on you again for a minute because it is called Business Made Personal. What was the most significant turning point in your life? Probably when I became managing director of BJS, was, that was a really big turning point, I think, in my world. Before then, I'd been involved in the growing. I was a director and I'd been decision-making and things like that. And I was still very much a senior account manager, getting my hands dirty on the day-to-day, managing a portfolio and very much managing a few branches, but really busy with the kids and busy at home. And then CEO or then managing director Bill DeVos was wanting to slow down a bit and we were looking for succession planning. So as a management team, we decided, okay, we'd all come away with some ideas of what we're looking for and what this person might look for. And then we'll go to the market and see what's out there. So we had a meeting and we're talking in the morning, going through our list with our management team. So both my dad and Bill weren't in that meeting. It was all the management team under them. And we were just really talking about what this person, what they would have. I, I don't know whether it was stupidly, but got up to go and get a glass of water, came back in the room and they'd all decided that it should be me, which I was shocked, to be honest, to process because I was sitting there thinking, well, I live in Inverloch. This isn't going to work. How's this going to work? And then I was really humbled, I guess, that the management team said, we've got you back. We'll make this work, but we don't want anyone else coming in and affecting the culture of what we've worked so hard for. And that's when I thought, wow, you know, you don't know whether people appreciate what you're trying to do. You work hard to try and make everybody happy in what they're doing and enjoy their work, but it doesn't always come off that way and and things happen. And so it was just really nice to know that 
the management team that I respected so much, it was a mutual respect and that they saw me as that person. And I drove home, which is a long drive, that two hours thinking, am I doing this? Because if I am, you, you do it right. And yeah, by the time I got home, I was so excited by the opportunity and the challenge ahead. And so that was probably a real turning point for let's do this, Let, you know, and and my whole outlook probably changed then of going, what we do at BJS, we do well. We're not, you know, we're not massive, but we want to be able to offer this properly nationally. We want to bring more people through the insurance industry and make sure that even if they leave us, we'd leave this industry better. It was more about a legacy of, of being able to provide that. And yeah, it's been pretty exciting ever since. So you take on the role of MD, you get there, you've still got Bill helping, but he was still there at the time. Did you suffer imposter syndrome? It was funny because Bill and I are like chalk and cheese. We got on like a house on fire, but we also saw the world very differently. And our leadership style was the complete opposite. He wouldn't mind me saying, and I was speaking to late Bill, who I have a lot of respect for, but he wouldn't mind me saying that he was a drill sergeant. He was, you know, he told them what he what he wanted. There was lots of long emails going on the expectations of them. And I was the, I'll come and meet you. We'll have a chat. We'll work out our parameters and you run your own branch and I've got your back. So it was a massive baptism of fire for the team as much as it was for me because I had some branch managers that didn't want to buy a pencil without dancing it off me. And it was quite funny. And, you know, they loved Bill as well but they equally loved the independence that my leadership style, and I had to give them that independence. I, I can't be everything to everyone. And I think that is the hardest thing as we've grown because I have to trust my team and let go. And if you employ the right people in the right role, you don't have any issue with that. And to be honest, they've all been amazing. So I've been very lucky. Did you find that, you know, with Bill's sort of attitude to business, which was traditional for old school managers, right? So, And I've been through that myself. Did you find that when you came on with your newer view on business life, were there people in the business that you had to let go because they were not able to make decisions? I was hoping you weren't going to ask that question. In my first eight months of the role, I had this running joke that I'd walk into an office and they'd all dive under the desk because they knew why I was there. I don't let anyone go lightly. They will have had three or four meetings with me, conversations. There will be no surprise of what is coming. I inherently want to save everyone and I do believe that everyone is good in nature. So I don't do it lightly, but I'm also really conscious that if you don't have a set of standards to hold people to, it's not fair to the, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the oil, but it's not fair to the people that are doing the right thing all the time. Another scenario was... I cried at three of them. So, you know, it's not a fun part of the role. Bill had my back through it all. And that probably bonded us even more that, you know, he was there saying, nah, you're doing the right thing. So, yeah, but I think people, ironically, I think that earned the respect that you're on my team, I'm going to have your back. But if you're not on the team, we need to know why, we'll work through it, but you're either on or you're off. And it's okay if you're not on, like that's okay. That was a hard baptism of fire and then to lose Bill not long after that. So I had a first few challenging years. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about not just Bill, but let's talk about mentors who have helped you in your career. Have you had mentors that have helped develop you? I've had mentors that have been there a long time and mentors that have been fleeting, if you like. At any given time, I, you know, obviously my dad comes to mind. I always bounce 
things off him. His work ethic is unbelievable and his expectation on me has always been extremely high, which, you know, at times I've probably wanted to crucify him for. As I've got older, I've realised that, you know, if you expect high standards from someone, you think they're capable. So it's a backhanded compliment, I guess. And I'm really honoured that he thought I could do the things because I'm not sure I did think I could do them. So yeah, he's been an amazing support and, and someone to really, to bounce things off and, you know, remains my mentor to this day. And then there's people like um, Gary Gribben, you know, I, I didn't want to do insurance, put his arm around me and said, what are we going to do about this? Are you going to pull your finger out and get this degree finished or what are we doing? He was always keen to keep people in the industry and Jerry Craig was an underwriter, very guru of underwriting at Concord. And when I first went out on my own, I rang Jerry for everything. I think most brokers did. Even if he couldn't write it, he'd tell you who could, where to go. Amazing knowledge, amazing knowledge and network. And he was one of those true underwriters that would also help you understand the risk. So if I rang him about a risk that I had no idea what they do, he'd say, okay, this is what you've got to be careful of. This is where they experience the claims. And this is back before you had your LMI networks that you can look those risks up and, and cheat if you like. He was my Google of insurance. I had a lot of, and then a lot of people just over the industry that when I've reached out for help have, have been incredibly amazing. I don't really want to name, I could name 50 in any given time that, you know, when I worked at Mercantile Mutual, I worked with Carol Dean. You know, I've worked with some amazing, she was an account manager out there in broker world where they were all males and she was the guru of networking, but true to her word and one of the hardest working women I'd ever met. So yeah, I've just had people that have influenced me. I've rung her a couple of times over the years, but then we might not see each other for five years. And, you know, so yeah, I think that it ultimately is an industry where people are pretty happy to help each other out. And I've been lucky in that, that respect. Do you think that we still have those sorts of resources in the industry today for people that are starting their career or for people that are currently developing their career in the industry? Well, I know there's a mentorship through NEBA and things like that, but I, I also know when people are busy, it's probably the first thing you drop is making that time for our industry. And it's something I'm really conscious of giving more back for because you don't realise the power of a two-minute conversation with someone that might be just challenged by the industry or the opportunities or whether they should stick at it or whether we've experienced a hard market before. All those things of, you know, the current market is really, really tough on people and we are losing good people out of our industry. COVID's obviously also impacted that. People have done life reviews and decided they want to do different things, which is fair enough as well. But I do think more than ever, that's probably a really vital thing to develop in our industry. I want to read something that was quoted of you in the insurance in insurance news. And I'm going to read this verbatim because I want your, your feedback on it. She has watched with pride as the industry cleaned up its act with measures such as the disclosure of commission and fees, uniform flood wordings, a range of improved industry standards and better professional education. You said that eight years ago. I'm just wondering if you think eight years later, have we done enough to earn consumer confidence? We've done a lot. If you sit back and look at what we've done, I mean, I remember being again at a conference. Sounds like that's all I do. I'm up at Jupiter's and Joe Hockey was there talking as the treasurer at the time, talking about how he was mandatory going to make people have to get a degree. And there was a lot of older men that had, you know, 20, 40 years plus insurance experience. And they were sitting there 
quite opposed to the fact they were going to be forced to study and get certificates again. But again, as an industry, we took it on and we self-regulated and we put an ombudsman in and we decided we're going to clean up our industry. We're going to do this. Now, unfortunately, following the Royal Commission, it was highlighted that consumer confidence was quite low in our industry. The biggest problem is that we might get it right 98% of the time, but the 2% we get wrong, we get really wrong. And I'd love to say we don't deserve the flack we get, but we do and we must do better. We really must as an industry. We must hold ourselves accountable. And I think what we've done as an industry so far, and particularly as brokers with the NEBA code of conduct and the expectations that we want to set our bar even higher than is expected of us in our industry is a way to go. And it's a great start. But I I think we're nearly there, but we'll never be there 100%. It is always going to need us to look at it and review it. I think the other side of it too is at that stage, we had a lot of products on the market of how you could make profit. Now, we all know businesses want to make money. They need to return to shareholder, things like that. But I like to think that our industry has changed where we go, is there a need? Do clients need this? And that need becomes the primary focus. Then we turn to, okay, can we make money out of selling? Is that the end result of getting this done properly? So I I think we've learned a lot. I think there's a ways to go, but I am proud of what we've done. And particularly in the broking industry, when you look at our statistics of complaints and our statistics of claims being paid, and we're doing pretty well. You know, and it brings me to my next question, actually. So it's a great segue, and that is in the differences between broker and direct. Buying direct, you know, it's now becoming the norm for personal lines policies. Younger business owners or startups are saying, look, I can do all the research myself. I can get online and purchase an insurance policy. Going back to the same article, and you might have been a bit prophetic here, but you said it's about the industry working out how to get online effectively while making sure they are understanding the risk. So many brokers, you know, have given up competing with the direct market, as we know. You know, a lot of brokers are saying, we don't do personal lines, we don't do car insurance, et cetera, et cetera. How do you think the direct market will impact the value of our broker-client relationships in the future? The conversation I have with the team at BJS is, and this is particularly to our account managers, our assistant account managers, is to say, okay, we hold our clients in our hearts. Like what we do, that's in everything we do, That's we look at what's right for them. So if we've got their best interest in our heart, why aren't we insuring their most personal asset? If we know the direct market gets it wrong more than us, if we know the direct product is not as comprehensive as our product, why aren't we concerned they're going to the direct market? Now, yes, it becomes a price war, but the problem is that the only time they understand that it's not a comprehensive product is when they go to claim. And it's too late to understand how your policy responds then. And that's why our industry is in such a tough place because it is really hard in, what do they ask, eight to 10 questions to put a policy together because that's the time people have and people are time poor and they want it as easy as possible, but you can't tailor a product and you can't tell them what they're not covered for. And if you send them through a 60-page document, we all know they're not going to read it because we won't read it. We only read it because it's our profession. So it's a really tough gig. And I think when I got into this industry, that was part of the reason I never wanted to be in insurance because of the name that went with that industry. So I was always conscious of having those discussions first up. I wanted no surprises. So I try and have that with my clients is just to say to them, tell me everything. You know, what's and all about your business? 
where are you bad? What are you doing wrong? Let's fix this together. Let's risk manage it together because I don't want any surprises. And equally, I'll tell you what you're not covered for. I'll quote everything I think you need, even if you tell me you don't want it. I'm still going to get a price on it. I'm still going to tell you what I think you should do. Then you can choose it. It's your business. I'm not telling you how to run it. But I think that transparency gets lost in that direct space. There is absolutely a place for direct space. We play in that direct space. We're really conscious in that direct space, though, of making sure that all the information we get to people is really clear of what they're not covered for or what the restrictions are and the limitations are. My concern around it is that we, as in the profession, gets lumbered into insurance, whether it's direct, broker, it really doesn't matter to the end client. They see us all in the same wheel, right? 100%. I think that's... It's not a bad thing. I mean, I'm biased. Obviously, I think brokers do an amazing job and and I'll stand by that. But having said that, as an industry, I'm proud of what we're doing as well. So cleaning up the industry cleans up the image of everybody. And I don't think people want to start saying, okay, well, let's separate brokerages and just say we're the best and everyone else is terrible because that doesn't do anything for our industry anyway. I've sat as an underwriter. I know the challenges on all sides of the fences and I know how hard it can be in the direct space as well. So I think ultimately we just need to be better and we need to keep working on it. The one pleasing thing is I think everyone in the industry is on board with that now. So if there was one thing you could change about our industry, what would it be? Oh, that's a tough question. It would have to be our image out there. It would be getting the word out. I think two sides of it, it would be, we don't have very many good news stories out there. There are amazing good news stories out there, particularly in times when, you know, there's catastrophes, there's floods, there's fires. The way we respond, the way we get claims paid, the way we support each other, you know, it doesn't matter which side of the fence you're on. If if someone needs help in our industry, we're all there. And I think the way we respond to that is second to none in how we can do that and deliver that and deliver that in a quick, reliable fashion and how we support industry and people through that and how we become part of working with government on that in the middle of a catastrophe and the work that goes on. But unless you're in the insurance industry, it's not really a good news story you hear. It's not told really well. The other side of that is it's certainly not taught in schools. Insurance is something people need. I mean, I used to say, you know, back in the day that insurance allows people to fly, but it allows people to dream. It allows without having the dream of your home, the dream of starting up a new business, well, you would never do it if you couldn't have protection because you could lose everything. The risk is too high. We allow people to, to take risks and, you know, and jump where we give them wings so that they won't, they won't get hurt in the process. So it's such an exciting industry to be in, but it's also a product that they will need to buy throughout their life. And it's no surprise that there are people that don't have insurance and didn't know they needed it because they've never been told. It's normally because the bank requires them to have it. It, That'll be the first time they actually go, oh, I better go and get an insurance policy. How do I do that? And that shouldn't be the case. We should be taught at schools in some form of commerce. And we certainly should be up there with a nice profession and career path for people to choose. And that is probably our industry's biggest downfall because we should have lots of people wanting to be in our industry and that will make our industry better by being spoilt for choice. I've got two final questions for you, Belinda. The first one is, if you had the opportunity to go back to that 16-year-old young lady that was going to be a vet, what advice would you give her? 
trust the journey. I think, you know, you do get hung up on people saying, oh, you know, you should try this. And I mean, I go back to Oprah. She's amazing. Don't get me wrong. But not everyone can be Oprah, you know. And so there are people that have to do desk jobs or have to, you know, do the, the service and things. And and until you give it a chance, you don't know how exciting it can be and how rewarding it can be. So don't write off opportunities until you've really given it a go. And no matter where you end up, do that really well. Like leave it better than it was when you went into it. So if you're in a role, don't undermine your ability to bring a lot to that role. Even if you think it's beneath you or you want to be doing something else, it's amazing how the journey will work out for you if you put 200% in and also how much more rewarding it will be. And finally, what are the five key learnings that you've had during your career? Well, that would be one of them. Embrace the chaos. I say that quite regularly to the team. (laughs) Maybe that's just because I'm so chaotic, but you got to go easy on yourself. You know, we're all not perfect. We will make mistakes. So embrace the chaos, do your best. Your word is your word. Stay by your values and your morals and your ethics and be true to your word. And people don't mind you not getting things in on time or not pick up the phone, talk, communicate. I talk a lot about having difficult conversations and how if you prolong them and put them off, how much more challenging it is than the actual conversation at hand. So the way we work at BJS, we don't have a hierarchy. So I'm as accountable as the next person. So we all hold each other to an accountability piece, but also if there's something that you're not happy with how it's been said or that's troubling you, we have that conversation then and there, no matter how difficult or challenging it will be. And we have that level of respect for each other. And it certainly stops people stressing on things. And definitely the growth mindset. I think if you think you know everything, then time to stop doing whatever you're doing because you're not going to add value to it at all. Some of the biggest things I've learned have been from people that have been with us for a very short period of time. That inquisitive mind and the way people think is is amazing to learn from. So they're probably my go-to. Thank you so much for spending a bit of time with us, Belinda. It's been an absolute pleasure from my perspective. And you know, your views I think will resonate with a lot of people. So we appreciate you being on Business Made Personal. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much for lending us your ears. Please remember to click follow on your podcast app or subscribe at bmppodcast.com.au so we can give you a sneak peek of our next guest. Until next time, I'm Mark Silvera, and you've been listening to Business Made Personal.